Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show, everybody. We're recording live from Las Vegas at the MJ BizCon, although this will probably go out a few days after it's recorded. But we're having a good time here in Las Vegas, having some very good dinners, a lot of good contacts. There's an excess of 30,000 people, maybe a 1,000 or more exhibitors with booths. It's just an amazingly huge event. It's a full mile and a half walk from the hotel over to the convention center, even though they're connected by a hallway. And just absolutely fascinating the, the different cannabis businesses you see, extraction machines and things that grind up biomass. And we're lucky enough to have here with us today, Elliot Rolf and Chris Lane. Elliot's an attorney and Chris Lane is a head of business development for a very prestigious law firm in the UK. And they're here to talk to us about what's going on, not just in the UK, but in other parts of the British Empire where they've been traveling extensively, looking at marijuana and giving a legal and business advice um, all around the world. I'll start with Elliot here. Elliot can say hi to our crew. Thanks, Jim. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Yeah, tell us about what's going on at Macro. It's very, very busy at the moment. So we opened the Cannabis Law Department about a year and a half ago. And in that time, we've just got busier and busier and busier. Um, I think we're actually the first and only dedicated cannabis law department in the country still to this day. And because we do that every day, it's our bread and butter. We don't do anything else. It's um, allowed us to get very close to all of the issues in the industry. It's still coming thick and fast. Where is the UK's cannabis program? We're some considerable way behind the US essentially the, the concentration the focus commercially at the moment is in the health and wellness sector with cbd products anything that's lower than 0.2 percent thc there's been a significant upturn probably over the past 12 months into things like the drinks industry the cosmetics industry so it's, it's pretty far reaching we've also of course got the pharmaceutical side and we'll probably come on to a little bit later as to the, the, the challenges and, and technicalities of, of why that's not as accessible as it is but it's safe to say we've come a very long way in a very short period of time. As Elliot says, we're, we're two years down the track with the department. We've had to expand considerably just to keep up the demand from our client base. And it's a, a client base that's truly international. And is there cultivation? There is cultivation. There is. There, there are essentially two different strands. You've got hemp, which is has barely any THC in it. Right. And this is where the 0.2% figure comes. And then you've got your full fat THC. To cultivate hemp, it is difficult to get a license. To cultivate the, the you know, full-blown marijuana, it's almost impossible in the UK at the moment. We're hitting a lot of hurdles with home office licensing. They're very nervous to, to actually give these licenses out, but we're getting there slowly and we're seeing... So there's still a significant black market then for THC cannabis? Absolutely, and arguably that's that's really the only place you can get it. I mean, we do actually have a, a, an exemption almost in law now for, for medicinal use. The problem is, of the thousands and thousands of patients that need prescriptions, only a handful, I think it's, it's a little over 100 now, have actually been given those prescriptions because of the difficulties in the law. I was really surprised at that number we were talking about the other evening. And the population of the UK, including Scotland and Northern Ireland, is 65 million. That's right about that. And only 100 medical marijuana licenses yeah. for 65 million. So that's crazy. <laughs> it, it, it's very frightening, actually. And, and, and ultimately, it comes down to the fact that you have to be on a list of specialist doctors in order to prescribe, but not just one list. You have to be a specialist for that particular ailment. So every patient is waiting for one doctor, you know, potentially or, or a handful, and there just aren't enough to go around. Amazing. 
And Chris, from a business well, point of view, business development point of view, what are the types of things that make a good client for your firm? I've always said, I mean, legal services, full stop, is it, it shouldn't be a, a service that you engage with to fix a problem that you already have. And we found in this industry, because, you know, in the main, it's still unregulated in the, in the UK, but there's a lot of people that are, are jumping in for a quick buck very little repercussions if it goes wrong from a consumer perspective it's it's outright dangerous in some examples so our ideal clients are people that are prepared to engage at the earliest stage they're the people that are willing to invest time effort money in ensuring that from a regulatory perspective they're as compliant as they can be but they also future proof the business we're very comprehensive it is a full service firm so we may have people that come to us with a specific brief and a specific request but part of my role is to ensure that the cross-sell capacity of not just our firm in london but our international network now in 65 countries can help that business grow mm-hmm. so in a nutshell the people that we want are people that are serious about growing uh, a credible reputation in the industry and i believe you told me that you recently made a trip to south africa I did, and that was as weird and wonderful as all the other conferences around the world. Um, obviously, everyone's extremely keen and very excited in South Africa where they've recently had decriminalization for personal use, and it's very prevalent over there. Everyone's very familiar with the plant. Uh, they're getting more comfortable with it. Uh, public perception is getting better, and you see that reflected in the businesses. You've got a huge innovation, um, very much the same as we saw today at the Expo. So in South Africa, they have legal cultivation and legal consumption? It, it's tricky. This consumption is, as I say, decriminalized. It's not officially legal. And okay, so there's no dispensaries. Not that I've seen, no, not as mm-hmm. I've just yet. But they say there are strands of business that are kicking off, uh, uh-huh. much like the UK. Do people come up and offer you marijuana when you're walking down the street? Uh, ta- taxi cab drivers, like, <laughs> like they do here in the city. <laughs> I, I certainly did get offered uh, while I was sitting on the beach if I wanted anything. And actually, they were very relaxed about it because it's tolerated. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the official legal position there, no, we don't have that sort of model. Well, my partner, Larry Mishkin, his firm does some international work. Uh, they have an office in Poland, I believe, right, Larry? Well, actually, yes, Jim, we do. We have offices throughout Eastern Europe. We do have one in Poland. We have an office in the Ukraine. We do have an office now in South Africa. We have offices in South America. And uh, Bob Holman has really kind of made it a mission of his to expand the scope of the firm's hemp practice internationally. He's done a very, very good job. Uh, both through the firm and through the sister company, IHS, International Hemp Solutions, which last year, I believe, was the largest importer of certified hemp seeds into the country. And so they've been very, very involved with all of this as well. I know Bob was in South Africa recently, and this past April, both he and I were in Tel Aviv for the Canatech conference there, which drew an international crowd, and I found to be a very, very impressive and very interesting type of event. You know, the, the, the structure of it seems familiar to those of us who have gone to conferences in the United States, but it's really something when sitting down to have lunch, and instead of somebody from Arkansas and Montana, you're talking to somebody from Qatar and France or wherever else they're coming from. The lesson that I learned from that is that the cannabis phenomenon is not unique to the United States, that it's a worldwide phenomenon now. And that really raises a question I wanted to ask you guys, because this is something I don't know a whole lot about. What is the history of cannabis in the United Kingdom? Right in the United States, we know it's had a, a very, very checkered history where early part of last century was put under the put in the Tax Act, and then uh, President Nixon created the Controlled Substances Act, and they list marijuana right at the very top, right along with heroin and LSD. And the biggest problem that we've been running into here, I think, 
is helping to demystify cannabis. I, in Illinois right now, we have adult use, and, and local communities have the right to opt out. So I've got clients who want to locate in some of these communities. We have to go con- convince the communities that it's okay to do. And the people who get up, the, the, the local uh, citizens who get up to object, are making arguments that are right out of reefer madness. And that's just a product of, you know, the United States government and the war on drugs and the type of messages that they've sent. Is there a similar type of relationship in Great Britain where there's a lot of pressure from the government? I mean, historically, marijuana has been illegal. There have been periods in the past where it wasn't. The problem is a lot of the country have a very traditional view and our tabloids don't help. So you've got a lot of people who would not be impressed with the government if they did just outright legalize them. I think the government are waiting for you know the right time and for public perception to mm-hmm. turn. It is a battle constantly. We know that successive governments have demonized marijuana in the UK. And actually, even in light of evidence that marijuana was less harmful than previously thought, they increased the penalties uh, the last slot, moving it from our class C up to a class B substance. So yeah, it, it's, it's kind of madness, if you like, in that way. And now only slowly is it coming down because its therapeutic benefits are being recognized. And to help us here in the United States understand your rules, what is the difference between class B and class C? Oh, absolutely. So well, let's start with class A. These are the most, this is the most restrictive class, if you like. The class system is essentially aligning with penalties. So the class A drugs are those that are considered worse and have the most severe penalties for possession or supply. Class B are less so in class C and it goes on so forth. So for example, a couple of examples of class B and class C. Uh, At the moment in class B, we've got cannabis. I think ketamine is probably a class B substance at the moment. Cocaine Um, and B. Cocaine is class A. Ecstasy is currently class A. LSD? LSD is a class A. Uh-huh. So, you know, they move them around and things like diazepam, Valium, you know, the things that you might get prescribed, they are usually found also around sort of class C. But they do, if they get a bit of pressure from the from the press or for some other reason, they'll jump up and they'll determine that stiffer penalties are required. Uh-huh. So to see cannabis go from a class C up to a class B is absurd, you know, at least in this day and age. And your first contact yep. with the authorities usually starts with the, the police for simple possession. Do people go to jail in the UK for possession of marijuana? Oh, I, I would like to think that that hasn't happened for a long time. The police are using their discretion very well in a lot of places. Some police forces, parts of the police have come out and said it's just not in, in the public interest for them to be putting people away for, for cannabis possession. But it happens, you know, and you do see young lives getting ruined in certain circumstances. And Chris, as we come to the end of this segment, what, what comments would you like to make to a US audience some of your takeaways from your travels to the United States and cannabis? Yeah, I mean, our, our approach to here, and, and to take it a step back, the, the way in which we started our journey in the UK was actually to engage with we're one of the original founders of an international network of lawyers called Mackerel International. And we were lucky enough to be invited over to the US about a year ago now, actually. And we were taken through our our US partner firms to a number of growth facilities and dispensaries here in Nevada and also in Colorado. And we were so hugely impressed by it that what we wanted to do is go back to the UK and essentially get ahead of the curve, hence us setting up the first ever department. So we were poised and ready for an industry that was only just starting to wake up in the the UK. Roll the clock forward two years to where we are now. And I've had very credible discussions this week 
our MJ VizCon about inward investment by major US corporations to the UK market, which is a very exciting prospect for us. But they're as excited, it seems, on, on, on the, the regulatory awareness and the level of guidance and how comprehensive it is that ultimately, if a US firm wants to set up in the UK, we're the people that can help you do that. It does seem to be a global phenomenon. Uh, you know, here at the Las Vegas Convention, there are people here from all over the world. A gentleman from Switzerland has a company here in Las Vegas, and his background is in the pharmaceutical industry, and he's running a very large cultivation and production business here in Las Vegas. And he moved here from Switzerland to run this company here in Las Vegas. So, yeah, the global global footprint is all over this. Well, thanks again, guys. We forgot to ask him the most important question of all, uh, whether or not you guys have any familiarity with the Grateful Dead. Uh, do you have any experiences <laughs> ever having seen them or listening to them? I know that they've played in England. Well, they used to play in England uh, along with the rest of the continent when they go do their European tours. So have you ever seen them? I think, so actually, I, I haven't. I'm looking forward to listening to them. Um, I've heard a lot about them, but I've not actually had first exposure. I'm not imagining Chris might have. We like to mix in musical stories with uh, this show, and there's a story of one of your countrymen, Elvis Costello. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys fans of Elvis yeah, yeah, Costello? Sure. As a young man, I guess he was in high school in 1972, he attended one of the Grateful Dead concerts. It was an outdoor concert. I believe it was May of 72 was Grateful Dead's first year. Well, maybe not the first tour, but their European tour of 72. And somewhere there's a picture <laughs> where Elvis Costello has a picture of, a, of the crowd and the stage, and he circled, and he said, that's me, you know, written, on the, written on the thing. He was heavily influenced by the Grateful Dead, and he's had a long and uh, prosperous career as a, as a musician. Larry, I have not been doing a lot yep. musically. I'm looking forward to seeing two Dead and Company shows with John Mayer at the end of this month. But you've been kind of active musically. What's going on with you as far as seeing some shows? Sure. Well, you know, on the last show, I mentioned my recent trip out to San Francisco to uh, celebrate with a good buddy of mine out there, uh, the 20th anniversary of, of the founding of his company. And that was on Thursday night. And because you can never go to San Francisco without seeing a lot of great music on Saturday night, the whole group of us that were out there all got tickets and we went over to the Fillmore and we saw the Almond Betts Revival Band. Now, this is a band made up of Devin Almond, who's Greg's son. Dwayne Betts, who's Dickie Betts' son, and Barry Oakley Jr., who, as you can imagine, is Barry Oakley's son. And they've got other musicians with them, and they come out and they do uh, very, very, very respectable versions of most of the, the Allman Brothers' music. Really played it well, but it was, it was really a lot of fun because they had a number of special guests who came out and played with them. One of them was Luther Dickinson from the North Mississippi All-Stars, which is one of my favorite bands. And Luther was out there for a while, and he did an amazing job. They brought Robert Randolph out on stage, and he played the pedal steel guitar for a little while and did an amazing job with that. And then just as kind of a nod, I guess, to irony in the 1970s, they trotted out this guy who looked very, very familiar, but I couldn't quite place his face until they announced him. And it was Robin Zander, the lead singer for Cheap Trick. And then oh, they, wow. they launched into a couple of Cheap Trick songs, which took me back to my high school days. It was, it was really, really an amazing thing. First of all, here's live Almond and Bet's Blood up on the stage. These are the real deal. These are the guys. They got a lot of great stories, as you can imagine. The music is really a lot of fun. They're, they're taking this show on the road, and, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who would like to see it. It's just a fun night of music. There's something very, very special about seeing a musical show, any musical show, 
in the Fillmore Auditorium. That may have been ground zero for Grateful Dead, and some of their some of their greatest music came out of the Fillmore Auditorium. And when you're in there, the the, the pictures that are all over the wall and the posters are are uh, an event in and of themselves. You could spend hours just walking along and looking at everything. And uh, they've got huge pictures of Jerry as the kind of the centerpiece to everything that's going on. And you know, the joke I have with my friends is, you know, there were so many great things that happened in that building. You can probably lick the walls and start tripping. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 it's quite a place. And I was a little bit skeptical, you know, to go see the, the kids of the of the, the band. But uh, much like Phil Lesh's sons have, uh, you know, joined him in the Terrapin Crossroads band and done a marvelous job. These guys came out and they really killed it. I, I couldn't have been more impressed. It was just tremendous live music, a lot of good jams in there. That's another band that I highly recommend besides Carl Denson. If you have an opportunity to see the Almond Betts revival, it's a show worth checking out. That sounds great. What were some of the songs? Oh, anything you want. They played Elizabeth Reed. They played Jessica. They played Southbound. They played One Way Out. The only song that we kept waiting for all night that they didn't play was Whipping Post. But, mm-hmm. you know, I can't do too much grief about that because they, they played so many other just great Almond tunes and other good traditional rock tunes and just to see all the talent that was out there with him. Luther Dickinson, I think, is one of the great guitar players around. He's just got a tremendous amount of energy, and uh, he was bouncing around and having a good time. Robert Randolph really took over the stage for a while with his pedal steel that he does. It's just a, you know, At one point, they actually brought out three guitar players, two guys and a girl, and I say girl because none of them could have been older than 14 or 15 years old, maybe. Allman made a big point of saying, here's the next generation, and and these kids came out, and Jim, I got to tell you, they played guitar like you and I could only dream of ever playing a guitar. And they, was they, it just, their they had stage presence. They were jamming away. They each took turns stepping out in front, and it was it was just incredible to see these little people making this huge, amazing guitar sound. It was very very cool. Were they kids of the band members? I don't think that they were directly related to the band members. We we, we never were quite sure about that, but. Somehow they have a connection one way or another because they're, 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 they're known to the band. And my sense is this is not the first time they've done it. It was a little too polished. Really, just to see this probably 15 or 16-year-old girl standing there and shredding an electric guitar, like, just unbelievable. She was that good. It was really, really great. The other two guys were really good. And what I really liked about them is when they were doing their jams, they have it all down. You know, even the, the facial contortions and the shrugs and the this and and boy, they were they were just cranking out music that was a pleasure to hear. Well, and one musical note here from Las Vegas, I heard on the radio today that Farner is going to do a two-week residency here in January. Yes, there's been a lot of bands. Uh, Aerosmith just did one out there last year, yeah. and other bands have been doing that. That's that's the big thing. If you were a, a '70s big hair band, you can now go do a residency in Las Vegas. Yeah. Boy, and they pack them in here in Las Vegas, so it's good for these uh, aging rock stars to be able to have a place to play their music. And what a legacy to have the second generation of the Allman Brothers. The last time I saw the Allman Brothers was at Jazz Fest shortly before Greg passed away with uh, Warren Haynes mm-hmm. on lead. That was well, my great memory, yeah. final memory of the Allman Brothers playing at uh, well, Jazz Fest. Warren, uh, they had Warren and... Derek Trucks playing guitar for them their, their last couple of years. Yeah. I saw yeah. a few of their, the, the, the final run at the Beacon Theater. Uh, my brother who lives out there was able to get some tickets, and I went out there with him to see a show or two. Look, we can all agree that without Dwayne Allman, it's just not the same. But I would suggest that there's very few people alive other than Derek Trucks who are truly capable of channeling 
Dwayne Altman, the way that he does. And, of course, with uh, Warren and his voice and his singing and, you know, really kind of taking over a lot of that. It was, it was a different Allman look, kind of like saying, I'm going to see John Mayer play lead guitar for Denning Company. Great show, great musicians, maybe not quite the same as the original guys, but good enough that nobody's complaining. Well, listen, we're coming to the end of our time slot, so I'll plant a couple of seeds for our next show. We didn't get a chance to talk about Missouri. The next time we have the show, we might actually know who some of the award license award winners are in Missouri. Michigan went adult use last week with still no adult use dispensaries available in Michigan. Before you know, we go, though, I just, want to, I just want to tease one thing for our listeners. We're going to arrange sometime in the next couple of weeks to have a very, very special guest on our show. And that guest is a gentleman named Jay Blakesburg. Jay lives out in the San Francisco area, and he's the official photographer for the dead, for fish, for anyone of a number of rock and roll bands. And Again, my good friend Andy Greenberg from uh, Society Jane, who was on our show a few weeks ago, uh, she's very friendly with him. He lives right around the corner from her. And when I was out there, I had an opportunity to go by and meet him, uh, see his studio, and I'll, I'll save the stories for the next show. But it, it really was like a deadhead's dream, uh, what they've got going on in there and the, the music and the everything. And Jay was kind enough to indicate that he would be more than happy to come on our show and be a guest. So... For our listeners, stay tuned for that because we're going to get Jay in and, and learn about the inside workings of the Grateful Dead. Well, that's a great tease for the next show. Larry, thanks again. So Jim Marty here saying over and out until next time. Larry Michigan from Hoban Law Group saying goodbye, Jim, and everybody have fun in Las Vegas. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.